You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm joined in the studio by two of my favourite colleagues, Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. I think we can educate and entertain at the same time. You can't even say it. I can't even say it. I think I might take the latter one because yeah. they're education. It's Sunday morning. It's Sunday a little morning. hard. A bit rough for you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> You've been doing the show for a while. I thought you might have worked it out. <laughs> Dr. Crystal. Good morning, Dr. You're Shane. doing little chug chug moves in your body like you're a train. I was kind of having a bit of a dance like to like, let me entertain you. Remember that song? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's got a bit of tunes going on in my head. Yeah. So dance. we're going to do the educate part too, though. Oh, okay. A little bit. Yeah, yeah good. We'll a, <laughs> bit of science. Give it a crack. I have to say, folks, uh, before the show started, these two are very feisty about a range of topics, so it could get out of hand mm-hmm. today. I'm not sure. And we have something that I have dug up. Even This was even before Dr. Crystal's time, certainly before Dr. Lauren's time, from 1997. From the archives. I'm so impressed that you could still find it. It wasn't on like a cassette tape. Like it's actually it was even close. close. <laughs> yeah, mini disc. One from the vault. One yeah. from the vault. Very that, much. Uh, as I said, Dr. Lauren, it is a perfect example of how I do with life because I have been meaning to play this every year. <laughs> And after, what is it, 18, 18 years, years, I finally got around to it. So uh, we'll play that a little bit later in the show, people. You're going to love it. It's a cup theme thing, not a cup theme. It's pretty cool. Anyway, we're going to get into some uh, science news because we've got a couple of great guests today. We have uh, one who's going to be on the phone talking about, um, Justine's going to be talking about uh, the polar regions and how they interact with one another and how we learn from the two of them. And we've also got a great guest from Monash who's uh, waiting somewhere out in the kitchen, I think. Um, mm-hmm. She's studying up. She's looking. Through her drinking notes, lots of coffee. Good. Yeah, drinking lots of coffee. Shall we ready? <laughs> we'll have fun with Michelle as well. Dr. Lauren, what have you got for us in terms of news? Well, I um, found a bit of a news story this week, which is one of my favourite topics, and it's the whole artificial body parts things. So obviously, that's kind of my my deal. Um, but this is a really cool area, my deal. <laughs> I claim deal. all of it, <laughs> the entire yes. body. Robotics now. and bionics. Exactly. Fantastic. It's all such such cool stuff. But yeah. So that we, we do know that you can get sort of bionic limbs now, so the arms um, are getting really good in terms of how well they can you know, manipulate the hand joint to pick up items and things like that. But one of the things that they haven't really got yet is being able to make finger fingerprints and tips of fingers. Mm. So you think about what you actually, whenever you pick up something, you actually get a lot of information from your fingertips. You know, it's about how hot that object is, you know, what, what texture it is, how, you know, even things like weight and things are sort of partly mm. to do with the, the pressure that you can get there. Yeah, there's this incredible sensitivity. Yeah, the yeah, there really are. And obviously, you know, there's also the cool thing of fingerprints you know, being unique and mm. that as well but really it's about the pressure temperature and those sorts of measurements that you can get so it's being able to pick up a cotton ball and a spud exactly a spud <laughs> Like, is it potato spud or... Well, is there another type of spud? No, I was like... You know, I like the word spud. It's my word for today. But, you know, you can pick up a cotton ball and not yep. wreck it. Yes. But you can pick up something, a hot spud. Yeah. Does that work better for your story? Yeah, that works well. Thank you. <laughs> exactly right. But, um, so this is very cool. So this, um, it's called electronic skin or e-skins. Um, and the, or the actual technical term is a microstructured ferroelectric skin. And it's basically... E-skin. E-skin. E-skin's much easier. <laughs> But it's actually, it's a very cool piece of technology. So there are materials that are sandwiched um, around a microdome array. And what happens is when you pick up something with this electric skin, the pressure 
from what you're picking up actually squishes the layers together and it causes an electric current to be created that sort of runs through the material. So depending on how much current is formed, it depends on what the pressure is. So the larger the current that's formed, it means it's a stronger pressure. So that, you know, microdome array with the little embedded electronics can also um, detect temperature. So if the e-skin is um, exposed to a hot thing like your spuds, Dr. Shane, um, the e-skin actually relaxes. So it's, it's sort of um, the material relaxes off. But if it's cooled, it stiffens up. So again, the sensors within that e-skin can use that to detect mm. what the temperature is. But the really cool thing, so this was something that was just published last week, is that they can now actually get the, uh, the artificial e-skin to pick up on audio cues. So when you hear sound, you actually get slight vibrations. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of the sound waves. So this e-skin is so sensitive that it can actually pick up the sound waves. And so they're now saying that they might actually be able to get it so that with these fake fingerprints, you can actually hear as Through well. your hands? Through your hands, which is a very cool idea. That beats the ear on the back. It really does. Not the ear yeah. on the arm. The ear <laughs> on the it. arm. Yeah. yeah, the ear on the arm. Yeah. No, I was thinking of the rat, the original. Yeah, uh, yes, the original yes. the best. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But look, it's, it's very cool stuff. So look, obviously the, the key at the moment is that they can do all these things with the e-skin, but they can't actually translate that to your brain. So if mm. you had a fake mm. arm with a fake yep. fingerprint, yeah, that, that's not actually being able to be translated, but they're working on it. So yep. they're actually looking at, you know, all of the cool techniques like optogenetics and things to actually translate some of this information and then be able to send it to the brain. But even just, you know, if you can even just get a a computer that actually tells you, you know, you've mm. just picked up something that's hot. Mm. It also opens up the world of robotics. Yeah, totally. Which is, you know, there's only some things that, you know, robotic limbs can do. I mean, yeah. actual robots, robotic limbs, not yes. people with oh, them. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that, that completely changes. You think of yeah. the things you would trust a robot to do. Yeah. I mean, with this sort of material, yeah, that level yeah. of trust goes... Could they, for example, um, operate or deal with a baby? Well, that's it, exactly. I mean, the answer might be yes yeah. if they have this sort of material involved. And, and it's amazing. And the sensitivity is amazing. So they were mm. saying, when well, with this whole idea of being able to detect sound waves, it's more sensitive than the phones that we have, like right. the microphones yep. on a phone. So it's you know really, really sensitive technologies. Cool. Mm. Mm. Nice, very cool. Well, thank you, Doctor. I want some now, Doctor Crystal. Yes, Dr. Shane. Beat that. <laughs> well, I, I was going to talk a little bit of, um, of, of Australian science. Um, mm. Australia's chief scientist, Ian Chubb, is coming to the end of his five-year term. Mm. He's set to retire. And um, I was actually at the Prime Minister's Science Awards when he gave his uh, retirement speech, and he said, that it's been quite a, he said it's been quite a turbulent time for Australian science because in the last five years, in his term as chief scientist, Ouch. he's had to deal with four prime ministers and seven science ministers. Mm. <laughs> so there hasn't been a lot of continuity for, no. um, for Australian science Did, over did he, did he mention the, the most enjoyable part of his time as chief scientist, though, was being a guest on their program? Oh, he, yeah, I, yeah. You, you know what? Did I'm, it come up? I'm not sure that came up, but <laughs> afterwards um, he was privately. telling everyone privately. Yeah. Who, you know, he couldn't show favourites on stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, we know. But this week was the announcement of who the next incoming mm. chief scientist will be. Um, Pro- Professor Alan Finkel, um, who is an engineer, entrepreneur, philanthropist, science communicator, neuroscientist and all-round champion of Australian science will be 
um, taking up the reins in January of yeah. next year. It's quite interesting to look at his skill set because it is quite diverse. I mean, mm. I, he um, trained as an engineer, but he founded a company. So he's been yep. out there and founded Axon Instruments, I yep. think, yep. and um, which was quite a wild, wild ride, it sounds mm. like. Um, a company that was um, was then uh, acquired, but they made um, patch clamp devices for measuring electronic signals across cells. So you know, that's kind of where the neurology and neuroscience element comes mm. into his research. So when, when my company first started back in 99 and we ran a, a series called the Innovation and Commercialization Program with the state, federal and local governments in the town hall, mm. Alan Finkel was one of our first speakers ah, um, because okay. of all because this work. Of, he, yeah, you know, yeah. he, was, he was one yeah. of the few academics at the time mm. that were doing this sort of work. Absolutely. A so, long time ago. Yeah, but, um, yeah. It's interesting that um, yeah, yeah, even then people knew how knew, great that was. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So he's been out there and, he, and he's done it. But he, I also love the fact that he's a science communicator. Mm. Yeah. Uh, he, he and his wife, Ella Finkel, founded uh, Cosmos Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, the science magazine in Australia. Uh, Alan Finkel also founded an education company um, called Style, which is like an e-learning app for use in classrooms to get IT, uh, interactive IT into the mm. school system. So really passionate about education and the uptake of technology in the education system and he's a patron of the Australian Science Media Centre. So very committed to science um, uh, outreach and education and communication. He's also currently president of the Australian Academy of Technological Science and Engineering. So so I would say that if you wanted to look for someone with a diverse skill base who understands um, all science's value across you know uh, education business Mm. and academia Alan Finkel sounds like he's got the the package. Mm. Um, It's very very interesting to see what his first comments have been to the public. Um, he said that it's critically important for Australia to reduce its carbon emissions, which was mm. welcome news to a lot of people. He's got a vision for Australia not having to use coal, oil or natural gas in its future, which is, you know, quite a, mm. a, a very bold vision to have mm. at this time. Mm. Let's call it logical. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, but you're right, you're right. In, in the it current is, setting. In the current political vision. setting, it's, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big thing mm. to say, mm. but you know, I, I think we have to more and more put these things down. This mm. is a logical, appropriate response and he is a scientist. Mm. So that's yeah. what you'd expect. Yeah, He's also been good. an advocate for nuclear power in the mm. past. Yep, he has. Uh, so, and, but he has said that you know that uh, the step towards nuclear would require a large amount of infrastructure. Mm. And it would be a long-term plan, and that with the pace of improvements in renewable technologies and storage like solar and wind, you know that these are economically viable sources of energy at scale. Mm. So, so I think that it's going to be an interesting five-year appointment mm. um, for Australian science. And he's he's mo- sorry, uh, Dr. Uh, Lauren, he's yeah. moved he's moved in mm. at a time that's a lot more appropriate than mm. the time in recent times where a former prime minister i mean the new prime minister uh can spell the word science which i think is a bonus <laughs> and you know we, we haven't seen exactly how far that will go but certainly there has been a shift mm. um been in a, the change in leadership and it's a, good for him to see that mm. there has been a big shift in mm. the energy and enthusiasm mm. for science and innovation yeah. um and someone said that prime minister abbott has said the same things as prime minister turnbull but for some reason we're, we're kind of believing prime minister <laughs> <laughs> but, but i think it's also to the point yeah. that he um i mean when when he announced the new cabinet mm. after the treasurer the appointment of the science minister was the yep. next position. Yeah. And, I think, and yeah. also backed it up with two junior ministers. So we yep. actually mm. have a minister, an assistant minister for science in Karen Andrews mm. and uh, an, an, an assistant minister for innovation in Wyatt mm. Roy. So I think that it's in beefing up the science portfolio mm. with a new chief scientist coming in, yep. mm. with a prime minister who says that science and innovation is at the centre of our agenda and hopefully means it. Mm. Um, and, and I think it's also raised the level of debate. Labor, the mm. Labor government has, you know, in their budget speech, put out huge well, innovation yeah. policies and mm. they and 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 ideas and i think 
could it be we're at a race to the top for science Rather policy? Than a race and to the bottom? Yeah, it could yeah. be that science might be an election issue. People might actually go, well, who's got the best policies for the future of Australia? It's always been my dream um, that a government <laughs> is elected on on their science credentials. Mm. I mean, science and and humanity can, credentials. You know, their mm. solidarity to their human beings from wherever they're from. I mean, you put those two things together, and that would be a a government that um, that would win the day. Mm. I think uh, if people are aware of it. Anyway. But Very good. So, um, interesting times ahead for Australian, for Australian science. Mm. Mm. Hopefully, good. When you say interesting, you know, <laughs> it's that old Chinese, uh, you know, may you live in interesting times. Not always good. <laughs> Anyway, uh, something quick. Um, I'm not sure, Dr. Lauren, this uh, might completely put you out of a job, but um, <laughs> two uh, very interesting people from Caltech, um, Noel Stiles and Shizuki Shimojo, have been working on a new type of glasses, these smart glasses, and I see you nodding, you've seen this, which translates images into sounds. Mm. And their, their concept is, is not uh, essentially a new one in that sense, in the idea that, okay, if you couldn't see, Maybe if you had something that was smart enough to translate an image into a certain set of sounds, you could navigate the world. Um, and we know that there are people who have sight deficiencies of all types that use forms of echolocation. Mm-hmm. They they click with their tongue, or they mm-hmm. you know they use sounds to actually um, find their way around the world. So this is not um, unusual. But what these um, two have been working on, which is I think the most fascinating part is that they want this system to be such that an untrained individual can use it. So Mm. the entire focus that they have here is on this being intuitive. So one of the things they've done, for example, is when, when when the glasses scan the scene and convert things into sound... Um, things that are higher up physically have higher pitch sounds and things that are lower down physically have Mm. lower pitch sounds. They tested it the other way around and people got confused. So these are untrained individuals just trying this out. Mm. But when it was high pitch up high and low pitch down low, Mm. culturally, I think over time, we've developed a oh, understanding that, oh, that's a high pitch. It's actually mm. in our language. That's a high pitch. It should be up high. Yeah. And so these are intuitive devices. And their whole goal is for these things to be put on the wearer, mm. untrained, and they will work better because of that intuitive element. Mm. So it's, mm. a, it's a very interesting project, which I think, as I say, you know, the conversion of you know, images to sound is mm. not new. Yeah. But but the focus on them being intuitive yeah. rather than being something that you train for months and months and then you can finally use these to find your way around. Yep. Uh, you know, this this is really exciting because mm. it means, you know, anybody of any age mm. should be able to whack these things on and use them as a, as a vision sort of uh, technology that can be... Um, Effective. It's, it's almost like reverse synesthesia. It's like you're trying yeah. to conver- you're trying yeah, yeah. to convert. No, it's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It is. It is. It's amazing technology though, because I actually have done mm. some projects using that particular software before as well. Yeah. And and one of the incredibly cool things is when the people use this program. So it's basically sensory substitution. You're using yep. sound to replace your sight. The parts of your brain that normally control sight actually light up on MRI. Yeah, yeah. So they you know, swap. it's it's yeah. it's just absolutely fascinating stuff. Yeah. And we're now actually looking at using this for for training as well right. so for you know you're trying to help people improve what site they do have and it's, yeah. it's incredibly and that, and that software you're speaking about has been mm. around for quite a uh, more than has, a decade i think yeah, so it's, it's quite yeah. quite well known mm. um the the new part of course of this and as you say that part of the brain is lighting up mm-hmm. the new part of this is to make sure it's intuitive that's it and and so if you have to be trained and trained and trained yeah not the way to go if they can find the intuitive path mm-hmm. then it makes everything easier for the wearer which i think will be pretty cool and the 
the other thing that's really improving too as well is that the speed of the um, software we can use and how good mm. the glasses are mm. and the cameras are amazing now. So this is something that yeah. can now be used in a normal pair of glasses yep. as opposed yep. to, you know, needing a lot of processing. Technology and stuff. Mm. Yeah, very cool. Three. Triple. Uh, we're back. You're listening to Einstein and Gaga on three triple R. Just giving Dr. Crystal some grief during the break, but she's such a good sport. She takes it with good humour. <laughs> we do have our first guest for today on the line. It's Dr. Justine Shaw. She's a research fellow in the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Environmental Decisions at the University of Queensland. Hello, Justine. Can you hear us? Yeah. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Now, thanks so much for uh, for joining us today. We we saw you put out some very interesting work in recent weeks with regards to both the Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, can you give us a bit of a rundown on why you're sort of looking at both of these at the same time? Because we often have guests on the show that look at one or the other, but rarely uh, anyone who looks at them simultaneously. Yeah, sure. So my colleagues and I were actually really interested. We also um, know people that either work in the Arctic or the Antarctic and we were really interested in is there any synergies between the two and maybe looking at uh, what we can learn from each other, from the two systems. And we Mm -hmm. know that climate change is affecting both poles. And so we thought it was really interesting to say, well, what are some of the other threats that might be affecting both the Arctic and the Antarctic? And looking at the two systems as one and looking at what lessons we can learn. So, so what are some of the similarities in that regard? I mean, obviously the, the way in which the two poles are affected by, by climate will be quite substantially different. I mean, I, I can imagine that's just true because of the distribution of land masses around the globe and so forth and weather. Yeah, so you're right. At the North Pole, there's ocean, and at the South Pole, there's a massive big continent. But I guess what um, typifies or is common across both of the systems is that they they are cold, Mm -hmm. um, and they they have a lot of ice, they have a lot of glaciers, and, and we're seeing climate change act out an impact on both of them. And so we're we're seeing massive uh, loss in sea ice in the Arctic. We're seeing loss of huge ice sheets melting in the Antarctic. And so climate change is impacting on both systems. You know, they're, they're both undergoing climate change. And so differently and with its own nuances, you're right, there's, there's differences between the two, but the commonalities are what we're really interested in. Mm. Now, one of the areas I understand you're working on is sort of, okay, we have climate change happening, you know, in the, in the background that's going on, but there's a whole lot of other things that we're doing that threaten these areas, which we should probably still be focusing on. So it's important to not move the focus completely to um, the sort of climate changing issue and focus on many of these other areas that we can still make a big difference on. Is that, is that, is that the sort of gist of it? Yeah, that's exactly right. The biggest threat to both regions is climate change. But what we've been looking at is that there's some some sort of other environmental threats that are happening on a, on a short to mid-term basis. Mm-hmm. Climate change requires, it's a global problem and we, it needs to be tackled at a global scale. But there's, there's, we identified other environmental threats that are occurring on smaller smaller scales and smaller time scales that we can maybe begin to examine and we know that climate change is exacerbating those environmental threats and if we can reduce any threats that we can reduce from these polar systems to to better conservation of these these amazing ecosystems. Mm. Can you give us a couple of examples of some of those threats? I mean one of the one I I, I saw in the material you sent through was the just the percentage of visitors to Antarctica that transports seeds seems incredible. Yeah, exactly. So, like, I mean, and there's the similar threats that are happening elsewhere in the world. Pollution, 
over-exploitation and invasive species is, is what you're talking about. And so we, we know that people visiting Antarctica, while it is a really remote, isolated place, over 40,000 people can, can visit Antarctica in a year. Mm-hmm. And we know what we've identified is that those people uh, run uh, are at risk of introducing new species. And we have woods already in Antarctica. Mm. It's, it's a big deal. And so some 24% of people actually drop seeds off as they go there from their clothes and equipment. Is, is there no process for, you know, sort of stopping that? Yeah, there is. And so that's one of the wonderful things about the... Well, one of the beneficial things about conservation for Antarctica is Antarctica is governed by the Antarctic Treaty System. Yep. And under the Convention for Environmental Protection, which is the Madrid Protocol, people are required to implement biosecurity when they travel to Antarctica. And so what I did with uh, work I've done with colleagues at the Australian Antarctic Division is we've actually looked at how good is the biosecurity for Antarctica and tried to really refine our biosecurity processes. So work out where the risks are. And so we... People have to follow um, quarantine procedures, but there's still room for improvement, and we've identified where there's room for improvement. And so uh, we, we worked out that people are carrying seeds, and we've identified what items are the seeds getting entrained in or trapped in. So things like boots and camera bags, mm. if, we can, mm. if we can get tourists and scientists to start cleaning their gear better, we know that we're going to reduce the introduction of seeds to Antarctica, which could result in more weeds being established. Mm. Justine, it's Lauren here. Look, I'm actually amazed by that number. I wouldn't have thought there were 40,000 visitors to Antarctica yet. It seems like, surprising to me. Is, is it similar numbers for, for the Arctic? Are there differences in, you know, tourism and, and science expeditions between the two? Yeah, there are differences. And look, the Arctic probably has more tourism. If you think about um, tourist cruising of the Arctic region, mm. there's probably more tourists. But also there's people living in the Arctic. Yeah. Indigenous communities and, um, you know, so, so Canada and the US and Russia, they actually have indigenous communities. So it's a different situation. Mm. Um, research stations, there's probably more research scientists going and working in the Arctic, but the difference with Antarctica, I guess, is it's really easy to quantify because mm. you know when they've stepped on the continent, whereas the Arctic's a bit more um, piecemeal in its structure, I suppose. Mm, sure. Mm. It, it would appear to me that there are a lot of uh, large companies that will benefit quite in quite a substantial way from the Arctic ice breaking up. Is it, this presumably is going to accelerate the problem quite substantially once um, they can move ships in and start you know, building oil rigs and, and so forth to extract those resources. Is that right? Yeah, and look, resource exploitation is already happening in the Arctic, and that's something that we compared. We said, well, what are the, you know, what are some of the problems with resource exploitation in the Arctic that we can learn to inform, you know, the Antarctic and what mm. potential risks could be in the future? So there's already uh, oil rigs, and we've seen huge oil spills in the past. You know, the Exxon Valdez happened in Alaska, and the amount of wildlife that was impacted. So we can look at the Arctic and say, well, how's resource exploitation impacted the environment? That's really things we need to consider. Um, when we look at the Antarctic in the future, it was also exploitation in the Antarctic, which currently is not permitted. Right, um, yep. So um, we're trying to sort of look at the systems in the, as they currently currently are. Companies can benefit from the... I mean, any, a lot of people are going to benefit from the opening up of the, the Arctic Ocean. The reduction of sea ice just opens up those shipping routes. And it opens it up, as you said, to, to resource exploitation, but also fisheries, um, fisheries stocks can be... You know, it's going to change fishing dynamics in the Arctic Ocean and and tourist ships and, and ship travel in general across that ocean, which is now it's it's getting warmer. There's less mm. sea ice, and so more ship travel also means the potential for marine invasion. Yep.
Justine, it's Dr Crystal here. Uh, your research must have taken you down to Antarctica a number of times over a number of years. I mean, if you, were, if you think back to your first trip, uh, what have you seen change in your, in your uh, time down there? So, um, really great question, and uh, I've, I've been going south of the Australian Antarctic Program for over 19 years, and I think for me, one of the fantastic things that I've seen happen is a really positive thing. I first went to Macquarie Island in 1996, Macquarie Island's where we have an Australian Antarctic Research Station, it's, it's an island in the Southern Ocean en route to Antarctica, it's a cold, wet, windy environment, and it's never had people living on it permanently. When I first went in 1996, there were cats, rabbits, rats and mice on Macquarie Island, which had huge impact on the endemic megahertz occur there and the albatrosses and the bowing petrels, this really high conservation world heritage area was being heavily impacted by invasive species. There's now no cats, rabbits, rats or mice on Macquarie Island and that's mm. because of government investment and a commitment to conservation. We're also NGOs have also contributed mm. um, and it's been a huge conservation effort and people are sharing information. So while it was Australia that implemented it, we learnt from New Zealand. We're passing that knowledge on to the French. And that's kind of what we've been trying to do is look at where can we share information and learn about how to better our conservation in these polar systems. Mm. Look, that's, it's fantastic to hear that. It's, it's a real, um, as you say, it's a feel-good story that you don't hear very often these days. On, on a similar note, I understand you're the co-founder of the Women in Polar Science Network. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we let you go? No worries. Sorry, I've a bit of background noise there. Yeah, That's so good. Women in Polar Science was an initiative um, that some colleagues and I put together. We, women uh, have historically been fairly low in numbers um, in Antarctic science. If you look at any of those historic photos of Shackleton and Morrison, it was all <laughs> men, and they even had to dress up as women to, to kind of pretend there was a whip, you know, had some women around. <laughs> <laughs> That's disturbing. So, it actually still happens. But anyway. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, no. No, it's no, one, no one can see, although the advent of social media has kind of tampered people's dressing up. So, um, <laughs> We wanted to create a global network that women all around the world could, could target. It was just an idea. It was a brainchild of me and a couple of my female Antarctic colleagues. Um, and we wanted to reach women in the Arctic. We wanted to see, just kind of create a, a network of women who are in the minority in Antarctic research. And so we created Women in Polar Science and we're still in our infancy. We've already got over, you know, 1,200 people who... Uh, a part of our social media network. We exchange ideas. We share our new research findings, and um, yeah, we're, we're trying to trying to work on c connecting women. And I suppose one of the interesting things that's come out of women in polar science is we've started working with um, an amazing lady called Fabian Jatner, and we've got a new program of, to take a group of women scientists on a leadership expedition to Antarctica. And that's something that women in polar science have been collaborating with other people, looking at how we can accelerate the, the role of, of women in leadership. Wow, Justine, you've um, just given me a reason to dress up as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> you, could, you two could come on a leadership and strategy journey to Antarctica with 77 other women scientists. We, we might, when your beard started growing, we might be on to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, that, that sounds absolutely fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that you're doing that. And I, I assume um, this is a, is this receiving support at all from governments or are you guys just putting this together in your spare time? So both of those initiatives are put together in our spare time. Um, Homeward Bound, which is this journey where we're going to take 78 women um, to learn about 
leadership and strategy as women scientists to try and better global conservation and we're going to Antarctica on, on a boat. Um, Homeward Bound, some, some governments are funding the scientists. So the, the participants, the women, have had to find their funding and so governments are funding some of those roles. Some of these women are spending their savings. Mm. Others have got some crowdfunding initiatives going. So, so uh, yeah, to answer your question, we get some government funding. Um, for, for women in polar science, it's just something that we do in our spare time. So all for a good cause and, it's, it's yeah, we're motivated to do it. Fantastic stuff. Justine, we're going to have to leave it there, um, but if you would like us to promote the um, that, that particular expedition in any way, please send email through to me the details and we'll put it through our social media sites as well. Um, thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck with the ongoing work. It's certainly great to hear that you're bringing the, um, the sort of learnings from both poles to, to each other and, and getting us ahead in that area. Thanks so much, guys, and it's great that, um, yeah, you guys are interested in conservation in these polar regions. Thanks very much. We certainly are. Thanks a lot, Justine. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Dr Justine Shaw, Research Fellow in the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Environmental Decisions at the University of Queensland and no doubt a regular to Antarctica, which is, mm. we love our regulars to Antarctica. I'm so impressed with what they do. Like, I mean, doing that sort of research in such harsh environments, it's, um, yeah, really amazing. Yeah, no, it's cool stuff. Three. Triple. You are listening to 3 R. It's Einstein and Gogo. It's an hour of science. And we are very lucky to have a real-life scientist in the studio other than Dr. Lauren. <laughs> I was about to throw <laughs> worry, something at you, you there. No, no, you know, it's, uh, you know, you're still in there. Dr. <laughs> Michelle Henstridge is from the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology and the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Michelle, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in here. Now, you're working, well, working on some really interesting stuff. Obviously, it was published uh, just a few days ago in Nature Communications, which I hear is an okay journal. <laughs> um, but you've been working on basically how uh, particular, you know, these growth factors um, with regards to fruit flies actually work and how that what that tells us about us so let's start with the fruit flies there's been this long-standing question my understanding is about you know what's the front and what's the back is that a nice way to put it yes that's right so um <laughs> for about six or seven years now we've been working to understand um how a particular growth factor in the fly is controlled to control uh, to, to determine what part of the embryo becomes the head and what part mm. becomes the tail and these genes were identified in um, genetic screens about 20 to 30 years ago now um, but since then it's not been known how they actually work and how this um, signal is controlled to only occur at the head and the tail end and not everywhere so okay. like the australianism of that was how does a fly know it's ass from its elbow <laughs> <laughs> from its head. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> but it's a pretty, it's a pretty big question. It's just like mm. when, 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 you've got like a single cell or a, you know small, small amount of cells developing. Mm. How does it know mm. where to? How do you know where to start? So, so I guess my, um, you know, physics guy. So my, my first question is always, how do you know it's not just random? Like, I mean, what, what is there to say that it just doesn't randomly pick a spot that becomes the head? And guess what? The butt's got to be at the other end. <laughs> you know, like how, how do we know that there is a specific directionality to it? Um, so I guess the um, hint here is that so most of the genes in this pathway are expressed everywhere in the embryo, um, except for this one uh, protein called Torsolac, which mm -hmm. is only expressed at the head and at the tail. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, we think that that is like the controlling the whole pathway. Mm. And so, only so, so you guys have managed to find this. How do you how do you go about determining 
which gene? Yeah, I mean, I, I always think of flies in a blender when I hear these stories. Is there is there a lot of mixing up of fly stuff and and looking at the genetics, or how do you go about actually working out that that's what's going on? So uh, the early studies of these genes um, made did um, mutagenesis screens and found that when you mutate any of the genes in this pathway, they all give the same phenotype, which is a fly embryo that has no head or tail. Oh, that wouldn't work well. <laughs> no, so it doesn't make it much further than the embryos. Unsurprisingly, sounds like a perfect fly. <laughs> But Less then, annoying. And then when you want to look at where these proteins are expressed in the fly embryo, how do you do that? Um, so we can uh, make uh, RNA probes to label the um, genes and look at where they're expressed in the early embryo, uh, also tagging the protein with fluorescence and seeing... So actually look, physically look down a microscope and actually see where it is. Yes, that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. See, so seeing is believing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now why do we care about this growth factor? I mean, I understand that we're pretty much flies genetically. Um, some, some biologist said to me once we're very close. But why do we care about this particular growth factor in terms of, of humans and mammals, other, other, other animals? What's the importance of this discovery? Well, so, yeah, you're right. Um, a lot of people are surprised to know that about 75% of human disease genes are actually also found in the fly. Mm. And in many cases, uh, these genes are functioning similarly in the fly to how they are in humans. Right. So the fly is a great model for understanding how... Um, human genes work Um, and what we found is that the protein that is controlling this growth factor release uh, which is torsolac it's related to a group of proteins in humans that are most well known for uh, roles in immunity and defense where they Mm -hmm. um, usually are responsible for um, destructing virally infected or cancerous cells so what's really interesting is that obviously torsolac is not acting in a similar way in the fly in that it's not involved in immunity but rather development so, so hang on, let me get this straight. So the, the, the part of the fly that says this is your button, not your head, is the, the exact same genetic material that in our bodies controls part of our immune system. So or, the yeah. closest related um, right. yeah, protein family. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so what does this mean in terms of us being able to utilise this? I mean, presumably, you know, I, I hear all the time at the moment one of the great hopes is that we'll be able to fire up our immune systems to fight cancer. Yes, so I guess this finding um, doesn't specifically relate to the immunity, but more interestingly, there's a few um, of these proteins in humans that, um, like Torsolac, perform roles in development. Mm -hmm. And little is known about how they function in humans, um, but they have been shown to be expressed in the brain and associated with diseases such as autism and schizophrenia. Um, So hopefully by finding out how Torsolac's acting in the fly, that might give us an idea of where to start looking in um, the human proteins. Mm. I'm just wondering, so with this protein, does it also affect our embryos in the same way? Like, does it have anything to do with where our human head and human feet are? or is it just for our immune system? As f- no, as far as I know, most, yeah. most of these proteins um, in humans are involved in immunity. In immunity, yeah. Yeah. That's a shame. <laughs> I like what, you want to grow another head? Yeah, it would be very useful. <laughs> so I want to explore a little bit more about some of the imaging techniques that you use to actually do this. So my understanding is that Melbourne is quite a leading centre for, for um, some of this imaging technology. Yes, yeah, so um, our work is part of the... Um, ARC's um, Centre of Excellence in Advanced Molecular Imaging. Um, so we've, we're really lucky that we have a lot of um, great tools available to us to um, study this and uh, essentially we used a confocal microscopy to look at these embryos um, less than an hour old and we um, tagged the growth factor with a fluorescent protein and then when we removed Torsolac we found that the growth factor was no longer released from the inside mm. of the embryo. Mm. And if you didn't have access to this, these kinds of equipment you wouldn't be able to do those kinds of experiments here? 
Yeah, no, definitely not. Um, it's been vital for our studies. How, how, how big are these embryos? When you say a day, an hour old... Yeah, an hour old. The flies really live a day. Is that true? Fly, no, they live much longer. Much longer. Yeah, Someone couple, told me that once months. when I was a kid. They only live a day. Don't worry about them. No. Um, <laughs> I think it was just a parent trying to, you know... Yeah, make you feel Don't worry better. about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so how big is one of these fly embryos at that point? Because a confocal microscope is a very, very you know, high-resolution instrument. Yeah, yeah, so an embryo is probably uh, smaller than a grain of rice, mm-hmm. um, but by an hour old, it already knows where its head, tail, back and front is. So it's quite remarkable that in the first hour, it goes from being a single cell to a cell that knows um, all its patterning and axis formation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look, it's, it's really extraordinary stuff. I mean, I, I, I often... Uh, you know, how, how often you hear this stuff about how like we are mm. genetically to these these completely different looking species on, on the planet is extraordinary and it gives you an idea of, uh, yeah, maybe we weren't created, maybe we did all, you know, come from a, a single source, you know, a, a, mm. a related source of genetic material and that sort of branched off and, and various things happened. But it's, it's great stuff. So what's next, Michelle? What's the, um, you know, you've, you've published this in uh, Nature Now, which is a pretty big, pretty big deal. Um, what's the next step in terms of your work on these little fruit flies? Well, so uh, although we've shown that this protein is required to release the growth factor, we're not sure how it's acting on a molecular level. Mm-hmm. So we're really interested to now look at exactly the mechanism of how this is um, happening and whether it is similar to how the immune proteins work in humans. Mm. Um, and beside from that, now that we've worked out how this protein works in flies, um, we're, interesting, we're interested to um, work with our collaborators to start looking at these proteins in vertebrate models such as mice or zebrafish and use what we've learnt from the fly to get an understanding of how they're working in humans. Uh, I think it's fantastic that, you know, we've known you've known that these genes in the fruit fly are important but haven't had the tools and the techniques to actually be able to work out, know, what do these genes actually do and how do they work right Mm. down to that protein kind of level, Mm. subcellular Mm. level. And I think it's quite exciting that that Melbourne now has the equipment and the knowledge and the people to be able Mm. to, to actually turn, you know, a discovery of, oh, we've we know a gene's important. Actually, well, how does it work and how does it work not just only in a fly but, but in, in people mm. all the way through to, you know, being relevant to human brain disease? Indeed. We live in a science city. Yeah, Melbourne is a science city. Melbourne is a science city. Dr Michelle Henstridge, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today and uh, good luck with the work in the future. Thank you very much. Michelle is from the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology in the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Three. Triple. Now, I have been digging through the Einstein and Go-Go archives, folks. And when I say archives, I mean archives, which actually just means the pigeonhole. <laughs> and I just shove things down the back and they hide there for 15, 20 years. It's like a Narnia cupboard. You should cupboard. admit that. You should make it sound like you actually have a filing system as opposed to a pigeonhole with junk. But I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm proud of that fact. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that my wife says I'm a hoarder. <laughs> And every now and then, I'll pull something out and I'll say, aren't you glad I'm a hoarder? <laughs> right? Because, uh, you know. Anyway, uh, that being said, I did try and fix my PlayStation 3 as they have a hairdryer and it didn't work. So much. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I saw that on Twitter. Well, yeah. How, explain. Well, there's a, there's a little uh, sort of like a, a glue material they use, like a soft solder, and, okay. um, and these things can become detached. And one way, apparently, to have a crack at fixing it is actually to heat it up so it melts and it reforms, ah. reconnects, and then... And then voila. Bizarre. Um, so I tried it once. Yep. Didn't kill my wife's hairdryer, which is good. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try it again today. And today I'm going to get a bit, bit hotter. <laughs> 
So I'll do it outside because I'm a bit worried I was going to set the house on fire. Anyway, um, folks, I wanted to play for you something that uh, we recorded in 1997. And this is uh, a Melbourne Cup thing. And I've been meaning to play it every year since. Um, you know, I forget stuff. What can I say? But it is a bit special. It was done by a good family friend of mine. Uh, my family's name, Adam Crittenden, and he is a professional race caller. And we had him in the studio once upon a time, and he was good enough to do this for us. So if you just hold on a minute, because this is old technology. It'll take me a second to push play. And um, hang on. Here we go. And see, see if you guys enjoy this. And the last couple of runners are getting ready for the Scientific Melbourne Cup of 1997. Pipette Lane, I should say, is just about ready to run. And Centrifuge will be just about the last to get set. There they are. They're all in. The field of 13 is set to go. Ready. And they're racing now. CSIRO was a little bit slow to begin. Think Big Bang began brilliantly, but it won't lead on settling down. There goes Pipette Lane through on the inside to lead from Hyperbole. Some Kelvin won't be that far away with nothing like a lab taking up a handy position. Then CSIRO moving up into midfield from Think Big Bang. Funding cut is next, followed by Equine Virus. Postdoc getting a fair way back with Pathfinder Centrifuge. Count Binary is back towards the tail with Alpha Quadrant. So as they run down in front of the grandstand the first time, it's Pipette Lane in front. Leads by a nano length from Hyperbole second. Third is Sub Kelvin, then nothing like a lab. CSIRO is next. Followed by Think Big Bang. Then funding cut as they turn out of the home straight. Followed by Equine Virus. Postdoc is next, then Pathfinder. Then Centrifuge, who's still back third last from Count Binary. And Alpha Quadrant is last of all. So as they head up the Maribyrnong side of the track and it's Pipette Lane in front. Leads by three Angstroms in front from Hyperbole second. Third is Sub Kelvin. There's no moves at this stage. Nothing like a lab in fourth position. CSIRO already under the whip in fifth, then think Big Bang. Funding cut is next, followed by Equine Virus, Postdoc, Pathfinder. Centrifuge is still a long way back from them, from Count Binary. And Alpha Quadrant is back last of all. Centrifuge lost a bit of ground there and drops out towards the rear. It's Pipette Lane in front, up towards about the 1,000 metre point now. It's Pipette Lane about a length and a half in in front from Hyperbole. Nothing like a lab going around sub-Kelvin. Then think Big Bang, who's starting to make a move from CSIRO losing ground. Funding cut is next. Equine Virus is taking off. Then Postdoc, Pathfinder would want to get a move on. And then Count Binary, Alpha Quadrant and Centrifuge is still back last. He's running slowly at the moment. Pipette Lane in front up towards a turn. 600 from home. Hyperbole second giving chase. Sub Kelvin is two lengths away third. Think Big Bang is starting to run on strongly. Then nothing like a lab. His funding cut with Postdoc commencing their runs together. Equine Virus is uh, starting to die on his run. Then Pathfinder, Count Binary, Alpha Quadrant and Centrifuge is starting to finish fast. Down to the 300. It's Pipette Lane in front. Firstly tackled by nothing like a lab. Funding Cut is coming home strongly with Postdoc down the outside. Funding Cut and Postdoc are the two at the 150. They race up to grab the lead, clear of Centrifuge, who's still running on fast. Funding Cut and Postdoc. Funding Cut on the outside of Postdoc as they hit the line and... 
I think Funding Cup may have just won. It's a hypergraphic photo finish, but I think Funding Cup will just beat Postdoc. Third in Centrifuge, who came home like a train. Behind them was Think Big Bang. Then Sub Kelvin, Pipette Lane. Next in was Pathfinder, who never really ran on. Equine Virus died quickly. Then Count Binary. Alpha Quadrant was next. CSIRO never got warm. Nothing like a lab back near the reel with hyperbole. There you go, folks. <laughs> <laughs> a blast from the past. Uh, Adam, great job. He's uh, still a professional race caller and came in and did that nice job for us. And amazing how right we got some of it in 1997. And funding cut is still uh, the issue of the day. Mm-hmm. How disturbing is that? Oh, yeah. In the week where uh, many scientists I were know. left disappointed by the announcement of the Research Council mm-hmm. grants. It's yes. maybe a little bit too close to home for But some. to those of you who got grants, congratulations. That's it. And uh, did you win some Victoria thingy? Oh, yeah, I did. I um, I was very spoiled. I, I won a, a Victoria Fellowship from Vestons. Wow, so. congratulations. Thank That's you. a big deal. A real life scientist in the studio. <laughs> and what are you going to do with the fellowship? I'm heading over to Europe in November, actually. So I'm very excited. I've got a world for science. For science, lots of science. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm just going on holiday. No, no. So I'm going to a World Health Organization meeting in Rome, and then some um, lab visits and meeting with a bionic eye company in Paris, which I'm very excited about because they. Um, I'm the, one of the first visitors. They're going to let mm. in to to look around. Amazing. And, yeah, hugely excited about the trip. So huge thanks, obviously, to Vesky yep. and the state government. Well, congratulations, Doctor. And we are very proud of you, but a bit annoyed that you won't be here in December. Uh, well I know, done. I'm, I'm actually annoyed I'm going to miss some of those shows too, yes. but I can always oh, call well. We're going to have to leave it there, folks. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. Uh, Dr. Lauren, Dr. Crystal have been here in the studio with me. A big thank you to our guests, Michelle and Justine, for their fine performances today. Uh, until next time, remember science is everywhere, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.